Ah, uh, darn it. What? I hate it when Gyro's turn into Yam Jams. <laughs> uh... Hi, and welcome to the Brewery FM podcast, hosted by Scott Hogue and Dan Usher, just two techies separated by a giant ocean, talking cloud, Moore's Law, and technology. I'm Scott Hogue, and this is episode 16, recorded on 21 May 2015. You ever heard of preemptible VMs, Dan? What? Oh, I like it when I send you into dead silence. It always makes for a good opening. Yeah, preemptible VMs. Tell me more. Uh, so we had some price drops from Google this week. Did you see that? How they're slashing a bunch of prices. They're going up to ooh, around about 40% less on some of their compute services. So we're paying a little bit less for CPU and things like that. Catch that one? Yep. Yeah. So that's nice. We're going to have a big price cut from Google. And you know what that means? Absolutely nothing. Well, that means we get a big price cut from Amazon and then probably a big price cut from... Uh, No. Rackspace? No, you're... Mm, probably not Rackspace. You know, they weren't in the uh, top corner of the Magic Quadrant. A bunch, bunch of cloud stuff. So Google cut prices uh, about, like I said, around about 40%, uh, almost across the board. Pretty good for compute. Uh, so here we go again with this commodity service drive down to the bottom kind of thing. One other thing that they announced that's unique to their compute platform uh, they now have this thing called a preemptible VM. And uh, preemptible VMs are really interesting. They basically run in all the other instance sizes that Google has, um, but they have one really unique characteristic about them. Well, actually, I'd say they have two unique characteristics. One Linux space? is... Uh, no, no. Uh, first characteristic would be they're about 70% cheaper. So... How do you get the same exact instance and kind of the same functionality and everything else? Like, what do you have to give up to get a 70% cut in price for the same amount of cores and the same RAM and everything else? Can you take a guess? Preemptible. What? Uh, I would, you know, I would... uh... Uh, the thing that comes to mind, you know, preemptible, um, is that they could be terminated at a moment's notice. Yes, you got it. You nailed it. So these are really interesting. So they are, like I said, they're regular VMs. Uh, the difference is they can be shut off at any time. So you pay a lot less for what you're getting. And you're getting more because you're you're basically getting regular CPU and RAM and everything else. It's just at any given time, it can get a shutdown request issued to it. So it gets a standard ACPI soft shutdown request. 30 seconds later, sucker powers off and it's gone and you're not paying for it anymore. Pretty cool, right? So I could see some use cases for that. But... Oh, there's a bunch of use cases for it. Think like Hadoop and, and clustering and things like that. So basically what Google's done is they've said, we have a data center and our data center doesn't run at capacity all the time, 
right? So maybe they run at, let's just throw some numbers out there. So they run at 80%. So at any given time, they have 20% of their servers sitting around doing nothing that they really can't give to somebody because they might need those to, to burst or do something else. But with this preemptible VM thing, that lets them say, hey, you can use all the capacity in the data center, and that's great, but if we need something back, we're just going to shut those preemptible VMs down and put them back where they where they need to be, um, either in our hands or in another customer's hands as we're doing kind of expansions and contractions and things like that. So really, if you think about, like, not so much, uh, you, you know, this isn't great for uh, SharePoint or anything like that, or like your website that you host every day. But if you're doing a lot of number crunching and things like that, uh, so a, a, again, the use case I, I came up with in my head was like a big Hadoop cluster. This is actually kind of cool. Some real-time follow-up. <clears throat> uh, it's interesting. They've got four limitation bullets mentioned, um, one of which is com Compute Engine always terminates preemptible instances after they run for 24 hours. So like you mentioned, you know, if you're doing a big Hadoop cluster and you are crunching away, uh, at some point you will lose that instance or that node. So that's kind of interesting little point. Um, the other thing they've got in there <clears throat> that they make mention of is preemptible instances cannot live migrate. So that also to me is kind of a, an interesting thing just in the sense that, uh, you know, if you've got some instance and you're like, ha-ha, I'm running this in a managed group in high redundancy, and we're going to make use of these uh, preemptable instances. Oh, wait, I just got preempted. Never mind. So, <clears throat> yeah, it's, it's interesting stuff. Um, I could definitely see a lot of uses, like you said, for the number crunching analytics side of things, but for things like, I don't know, uh, exchange nodes or SharePoint nodes or some application server nodes, Maybe, maybe I could see this being useful, but uh, a lot of those cases probably not. Yeah, not going to happen. But, you, you know, it's it's one of those unique offering things. And uh, so if you think about something like Amazon, AWS, and their uh, spot instance pricing, right, the way they, they spin up uh, spot instances and they do kind of open bids and everything else, uh, it, maybe they can adopt something like this and get some... Mm, really like low cost pricing in there as well. Uh, Cause there's quite a few businesses that actually kind of build their model around um, that whole thing, bidding on instances when they're available and everything else. So uh, as we have this commodity drop in price and everything else, it opens up, you know, all some of these other kind of differentiators in the way the platforms are spun up and the, and the tooling behind them. So um, I, I thought it was pretty neat. Uh, I'm more looking forward to the price reduction because everybody kind of locksteps and uh, matches price all the time, right? So now we've got a price drop from Google. Hopefully within the next couple of days, uh, we'll see a price drop from Amazon. And then once Amazon drops their price, uh, usually we see Microsoft drop theirs uh, in the next couple of days. You know, uh, Amazon and Microsoft might get these preemptive <clears throat> or preemptible instances quicker than you think. Because as they slash those prices, people are going to start using their services more. And all of a sudden, the data centers are going to start catching on fire because they're being used so much. <laughs> oh, my gosh. It's a football-sized field of servers. Just exactly. Burning down. That would be uh, you, you know, I, I think they'll be okay. Uh, we'll see. You, you know, hopefully those two providers and 
Microsoft and Amazon, you know, they kind of just scored the latest and greatest in the Gartner Magic Quadrants. So they probably want to keep that up and don't want to have their data centers burning to the ground or anything like that. Yeah. I mean, the only time that I know there's been a fire at a data center from Amazon uh, was when you flew into town for SharePoint Saturday, Virginia Beach, I think, earlier this year. Um, only because the radio was saying, you know, there's smoke billowing near Dallas airport. Don't worry. It's not a plane. It's, uh, you know, some industrial building. And I believe it ended up being one of the AWS data centers, but I might be wrong. Yeah, it, it was either AWS or it was Verizon. It was one of those two that sits out there. Yeah. Um, I, I just, list there. Yeah, yeah. There, there was something that went on there. Um, but you know what? It's, they put it all out and they keep on trucking and that's why they have, um, you know, multiple regions and within each region, they have multiple availability zones and everything else so that everything kind of keeps on working, right? Mostly, mostly. So should we do some follow-up real quick and talk about this MVP panel from last week? The, uh, oh, what was it? The Ignite session, um, the MVP panel, SharePoint on-premises online and everything in between, BRK, Two one six three. So I think my initial thoughts, and I think we both kind of had this thought, was why the heck did they put a video up? It should have just been an audio with like a picture of a slide. Yeah, that was great, right? Just kill the battery on your device. So like I was watching it on my uh, my iPad and running around. And all right, so let's show some video of the panel. Let's show some video of the crowd. Let's show some... No, we're just going to show the opening slide and run it on a continuous loop. That that was pretty epically nice. Yeah, I was told that uh, it was one of the most popular sessions, apparently, um, at least when it came to the SharePoint stuff. Uh, they had filled up the entirety of the room that they were assigned to, as well as the overflow room. So apparently there was an overflow to the overflow room. Um. So that was that was uh, that was interesting to hear. The panel itself, I guess, consisted of uh, the IT pros of Dan Holm and Chris McNulty, and then uh, the social media architect of Christian Buckley, um, and then I guess they had uh, Jennifer Mason, Jennifer Roth. I don't know what she goes by. I think she uh, still goes by Mason. Okay, so Jennifer Mason and Laura Rogers. AKA Wonder Laura. Um, yes, not the, to be confused with the other Laura. Yeah, the other the other Laura Rogers in the SharePoint community. Um, but uh, so they were there representing, I guess, uh, also you know the end user, the solutions, uh, business process management, change management uh, side of things. And I guess that you know as an overall, uh, I guess my takeaway was it was not the session that IT pros couldn't miss because. It wasn't really all that much IT pro-y. Um, it, it very much was a lot of the uh, things that come up that kind of get hoisted onto the shoulders of IT pros. Um, you know, hey, we got this situation. We need you to come and build out this infrastructure and tell us all the problems and tell us how this is going to affect the business user population. And yes, you know, that's things that go on. Um, a lot of that is not always necessarily the responsibility of the IT pro. But if you are, you know, the SharePoint person, I can see how a lot of that would end up falling on your shoulders if you were the only person around. Um, really, to me, the the two interesting points 
uh, or at least the one interesting point that was brought up was Dan Holm talking about organizations that eventually caved uh, due to the cost of uh, cloud just being so darn cheap as a commodity in terms of like storage and whatnot. Um, I guess he was he was going through a little bit of background. He was going through and talking about you know what are the drivers to go to the cloud and what uh, what would keep an organization on premises. And how, you know, some of these organizations were hell-bent on never going to the cloud and always going to keep their stuff on-premise because they want to have control, they want to have ownership. And at some point, they just kind of broke down and said, well, we can't beat the cost of, I guess, uh, what, 20 bucks a month for an E3 seat. Um, that It's far cheaper than what we actually pay in uh, environmentals, servers, you know, seat licenses, all this jazz. So yeah, let's, let's go ahead and move. So I thought that was you know kind of interesting that he brought that up. And then the best question I thought was uh, the one gentleman who asked, you know, how can you plan for what uh, five years from now is going to be uh, really the main thing that everybody's going to be focusing on for this SharePoint collaboration platform and how can we make ourselves ready for it? And uh, again, Dan was like, you can't, sorry, you just, you can't, uh, you can't plan for it and you're not going to know because they're trying to do things in this rapid succession of building towards uh, what they see is, you know, kind of their endpoint in the short term. And, you know, they still have a long-term roadmap, but uh, they're trying to be iterative and compete. And the only way they can do that is to continually just, you know, kind of have the, the drifting ship out at sea trying to avoid the glaciers. Yeah. It's, uh, it's interesting, right? To get that, take on things and to see it from somebody who's kind of doing uh, larger scale deployments. So Dan talked a couple times, he mentioned uh, the concept of uh, risk optimization, right? And um, really, how are you going to lay out risk of going to the cloud when you look at it holistically? So if you look at going to a provider like Microsoft, whether you're going for their uh, Azure uh, kind of platform services, or you're looking at something a little more managed like Office 365, uh, you've really got to be able to weigh everything out there. You know, realistically, uh, nobody is going to be able to build a data center uh, with the same security measures and the same security accreditations and keep them up to date the way that these providers are. Um, I actually saw a great, uh, there, was, there was a keynote opened at one of the AWS summits here a couple weeks ago. Uh, and one of the speakers uh, was talking about this uh, same concept, um, except they were tying it back to uh, a term from um, options trading, from, from stock trading, uh, about risk reversal, right? And as you look to uh, make these transitions either into buying new services from somebody uh, or even if you're going to sit down and think about building out your own uh, data center or anything like that, or partnering up and maybe doing colo, something like that, uh, really there's this concept of we don't have to take all the risk on as the business anymore. We should be looking to make sure that our providers are handling more and more and more of that, whether that's uh, security, whether that's uh, upkeep, making sure that we get uh, new servers and, and new services, kind of consistently everything else. Um, so I, I love that concept, right? And, and it, it speaks volumes about 
the way businesses are kind of uh, making this transition. Um, you know, Amazon calls them uh, journeys, right? We're, we're on the journey to the cloud and Microsoft is always talking about experiences. Um, but it, it really is, I, I like the, the term journey, right? Because we're all on this path and, and eventually, you know, a lot of us are going to be able to, to go this way um, and get everything to where we need it to be. I think there was somebody in the uh, towards the tail end of that panel that actually asked the question. They said, um, hey, listen, what do you, what do you uh, for everybody up there, what do you think your opinion is um, on these companies who say, uh, you know, we, we can't go to the cloud because uh, the security is not great or something else? Um, and so Chris McNulty kind of uh, chimed in. And so, you know, he's a, a chief technology officer for a uh, cybersecurity uh, product vendor, right? Uh, and he sat there and said, you know, you're crazy if you can't uh, wrap your head around that my, the Microsofts and Amazons of the world are always going to be able to uh, provide a lot better uh, services than you can yourself. Even if you can do it on day one, there's no way that you can keep up with it over time with the amount of money um, that companies like Microsoft and Amazon are pumping into uh, R&D and upkeep and just you know, they want more customers. So as they expand around the world, you know, they need more and more accreditations and everything else. And every customer gets to benefit from that over time. <clears throat> How many stars would you give it as a session? Uh, <laughs> uh, you know, I, I'd give it like, it depends on what you are, right? If, if your role is an IT pro, uh, there's probably not too much there for you to get. Uh, if your role is a business user or you're a purchaser or something else, um, it's probably worth having a listen just for some of the opinions and um, some of the things that these guys are seeing out there. So uh, three out of five. Yeah, I'd give it uh, I'd give it three and a half out of five. Probably I was a little let down that they didn't have slides and that uh, <clears throat> the session didn't have any video. But I mean, content wise, thought it was okay. I didn't really think it was IT pro focused, but I don't really know where I would have put it in terms of focuses outside of maybe like birds of a feather, which they didn't seem to have this year. Yeah, no, that's, that's a great point. Uh, definitely it fits in that vein. Uh, you know, it wasn't meant to be a technical session uh, and, the, and the description of it was a little bit weird, right? But I, I, I think it got across what it needed to get across uh, for hopefully business decision makers that were in the room. Uh, you know, it wasn't so much about the technical components that we need to get there, but uh, you really do need to understand the underlying business drivers for looking at a lot of this stuff. Uh, whether, again, whether it's going to a platform thing like Azure, AWS, and doing like infrastructure as a service, or whether you're looking at software as a service over in doesn't doesn't matter. Salesforce, Office three sixty five, whatever. You've got to have the business decisions to go there, and then we can figure out the kind of technicalities and um, how to get everything sliced and diced and, and put in where it needs to be over time. True. Very 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 true. <clears throat> hopefully, hopefully they do bring back the birds of a feather or add in more of a <clears throat> I don't know uh, risk track maybe that. Might be something that uh, could be beneficial since they could probably show off different uh, risk sessions and how cloud and other services can uh, help to mitigate that. Yeah, it's it, it, it's an interesting thought. So I, I personally, I wish that 
there were more resources or more sessions out there around costing um, and kind of putting all this stuff together. Uh, so, you know, when you look at solutions like this, uh, you mentioned kind of uh, a couple of minutes ago, taking a look at when, when you're looking at going to one of these providers, um, you know, all of a sudden you're not paying for things in your data center, whether that's uh, support engineers to kind of keep the lights on or somebody to run behind the racks and check the temperatures. Uh, heck, you're not paying for the racks. You're not paying for heating and cooling and all that stuff. So it's really hard to be able to quantify kind of TCO uh, when you're thinking about, you know, just a singular component of it. And you've kind of got to look across uh, the board about what you spend and where it makes more sense to have your stuff. You know, one of the stories in that session uh, was about an organization Dan was working, uh, Dan Holm was working with, you know, he's said, no way they're going to go to the cloud. And, you know, they were adamant about it. Um, and then two weeks later, uh, Microsoft announced 50 gig mailboxes for exchange online. And the customer was, yeah, we can't do that for every single one of our users. So like you said, let's go buy an E3, get everybody in there. It's way cheaper. It makes more sense. Um, all of a sudden we had a compelling business case to get there and it met the, all the technical stuff as well. So um, definitely, you know, that, that messaging, I think around TCO and, um, especially trust, uh, that used to be a big thing. Um, it doesn't seem to be so much these days. I, th I think Microsoft's getting a lot better at communicating the accreditations and everything they have out there. Uh, hopefully everybody knows about the trust centers, uh, whether that's for Office 365 or Azure, uh, which for the most part align pretty well, right? Because in some cases, you know, they're hosted pretty close to each other and they're all kind of built on the same model and everything else. Um, so having all that stuff published out there now um, and readily available and hopefully enough of, us, enough of us have been beating the drum over time to say, go to the trust center. Here you go. Here's what it is. Go to the trust center. Here's what it means when... Azure says it is PCI compliant. Here's what that means you need to do. Here's what that means they need to do as a provider. Um, you know, all those different things. Yeah, I think uh, one thing you, I think we both hit on though, is kind of that, that total cost of ownership that a lot of folks just kind of brush by. Um, if you think about it, a lot of, a lot of the folks that I know when someone says, hey, we're, going, we're thinking about going to the cloud, um, like management does. And all of a sudden, the IT pro or the developer goes, oh, crap, my job's in jeopardy. Um, to me, I don't, I mean, I could see, like, a data center operations team, if they had 12 people, yeah, they might only need three after this because they moved so much of their stuff up to the cloud and they're only running, like, critical systems that they have to keep on-premises. Um, but, you know, developers, IT pros... I wouldn't worry one bit because you're still going to have to go through and understand how to, you know, operate this stuff, even if you don't necessarily have uh, access, physical access to the hardware. So just, uh, you know, uh, the other thing is, especially organizations where they run out space in like a colo um, to have their server racks, all of a sudden, you know, they're going down from like, <clears throat> I don't know, 10 racks of equipment to three. And... I know some people love running their own exchange systems, but unless they have a really good reason to, I can't see why I would actually continue to. And, you know, I've got eDiscovery, I've got DLP, I've got 50 gig mailboxes, I've got 
unlimited archive, if I've got the exchange online archive SKU attached to me, um, it just, it, it seems silly not to start using those cloud resources for a lot of this stuff. Yeah. Um, you know, I, I don't quite understand th that mindset, I guess, of, uh, IT pros who think they're losing their jobs. Uh, I, I have some trouble wrapping my head around that. Right. Um, kind of as a, I, I guess, a typical um, geek who's into technology and everything else. Uh, you know, if my job changes, that's actually part of my job. I didn't sign up to be a, um, uh, like a line order cook or, uh, you know, a burger flipper at uh, a fast food restaurant, right? I, I didn't want to do that for the next 30 years. You know, if you want to do the same thing every day, I guess that's okay, but you might be in the wrong field if um, you're working in this technology space, right? It, it, it's about growth and changing and doing some other things. Um, you know, I think for a lot of the IT pros who are kind of down down in the mud and, the, and they're worried about day-to-day -day things, uh, you're still going to have day-to-day things to do. They're just going to be different kinds of things and they're going to involve different technologies, right? So if you've been uh, kicking and screaming and dragging your feet and saying, I'm not going to learn PowerShell, well, guess what? You've got to kind of get on that train and come along or you got to find something else to do because that's the way the world's going. And that's kind of the reality of the situation and what's happening with it. So if you're not willing to adapt and grow and come along for that ride, um, I, I don't know, you're, you're in a tough spot, right? You really have to uh, want to grow um, or at least be open and adaptable to change. You know, everything's going to change over time. It's not going to be the same today as it was yesterday or the day before that. So get on board and, and come along. Yeah, hopefully uh, hopefully, folks will, you know, after this last event, actually go open and crack open PowerShell and realize, holy crap, PowerShell 3.0, 4.0, and 5.0, whenever it comes out, powerful stuff um, and not that hard to use. So it is what it is. Yeah. Uh, let's see. What else we got? So the other... So one of the other things we got, uh, Google Fi. So that's that service that uh, Google picked up that they're using that runs on top of uh, Sprint and T-Mobile as kind of a reseller. Um, they mentioned, hey, you know, you have to use our Nexus 6 device. It's the only one that knows how to do this with a specialized SIM card that can be connected to uh, what we call Google Fi, which is, you know, the two different networks simultaneously or handoff between them. Um, they had some little caveats they released about how uh, Google Voice works with this. So basically what it all boiled down to was if you use Google Voice, uh, you're going to, like, if you transfer your number to Google Voice, uh, from Google Voice to Project Fi, um, a lot of your functionality breaks. Uh <laughs> which just kind of was like, wait, what? Um, so if you, I guess, use your Google Voice number on Sprint natively, uh, you can continue to receive phone calls through Google Talk. Uh, but with Project Fi, apparently that is no more. You can no longer make or receive phone calls using Google Talk with the Google Voice apps. Um, so that's kind of a bummer. Uh, and then you wouldn't be able to send uh, or receive or uh, send or receive text messages or access voicemails on the web. 
So if you go to the voice.google.com page and you're used to and accustomed to being able to send texts from there and listen to your voicemail messages, uh, they aren't going to be accessible to you and you're not going to be able to do that. So it's a very similar experience to if you switched from Google Voice to Hangouts. Um, but oddly enough, if you're using Hangouts, they've backported it to make that accessible to you uh, for text messaging and voicemails through Hangouts. So basically they're... They're really uh, starting to try and kill off Google Voice. So I'm curious when we're going to see the rest of Google Voice killed off for the browser as they you know, go forward doing this for uh, Google Fi. Um, <clears throat> there are some other things that they mentioned uh, that uh, you're not going to be able to modify the settings for from Google Voice either. Things like the spam filtering and the call recording and the call switching, uh, the conference calling on the fly and the caller ID stuff. So I'm, I'm curious... Uh, how this is all going to work because I know even, you know, I've switched over to hangouts for my stuff primarily, uh, but I can still go into that Google voice page and, uh, you know, modify um, what my call recording is or go in and update like who's on my spam list or something like that. So I think it's, it's odd to me that they're modifying these things because quite honestly, I have no clue how you're going to, uh, access that stuff through uh, Google Fi, but <clears throat> oh well. I guess uh, I guess Google has something on their mind as to how they're going to transition people to this. Yeah, you know what it sounds like. It sounds like you need to go buy a new phone for science. <sighs> no. Yeah, yeah. Ne- ne- Nexus Six. It, it, um, yeah, Nexus Six it up, and then let us know how that goes. But <laughs> you have fun with that. Uh, I think I'm going to wait till the iPhone 6 Plus, 6S Plus comes out and switch over to that instead. Yeah. You can keep waiting. We'll, we'll see what happens. You should have those soon enough, too. You know, September's right around the corner. Yeah, you know, some, some follow-up on that, though. I know we had uh, kind of chatted a while back about the... Uh, the Force Touch on the MacBook Pro 13-inch, how that got updated... Um, kind of kind of interesting to see that they updated the MacBook Pro 15 inch as well this week, a couple days ago, uh, where they did the same thing they did on the 13 inch, where they added a double uh, the secondary channel for uh, the I guess what SSD chip. Um, so effectively, the device is now twice as fast, which is kind of neat. But they didn't really do much in terms of processor, except for uh, do their regular quote unquote <clears throat> silent update where, you know, they take it and basically start putting in the newer, uh, Haswell processors. So no Broadwell update, no sky, uh, sky Lake update. Uh, I guess we might hear about those and new hardware that could potentially come out, I guess, late September, maybe, um, but we might hear about those at WWDC, which is coming up in a couple of weeks. So we shall see, I guess. Yeah, the only hardware thing they had in there was the um, what is it? The the GPU changed, right? So it went from uh, Nvidia over to AMD. So uh, if that's your thing, hey, you can buy a 15-inch Retina MacBook Pro uh, with an AMD GPU now. Uh, and they've also got a uh, new Retina iMac out, so now you can go all the way up to uh, 27-inch in the Retina iMac as well. These go to 11. Mm-hmm. Oh, well. 
Um, so I know usually uh, we kind of we kind of hop around talking about things, um, but I, I feel wait. Like we need you, to... you mean like going from Ignite to Google Fi to MacBooks? Yeah, I think we should uh, we should follow up with a little bit more MacBook stuff. Um, Marco Arment wrote an article uh, about the the Retina MacBook. Uh, I don't know if you got a chance to read that one, but it was interesting. He mentioned he had bought one and he regretted it. And I mean, Marco, uh, I don't know how much the money the man has, but you can't tell me that you know spending twelve hundred dollars on a MacBook is something super regrettable for him. Um, money is money. I agree. And, you know, it's good to be a good steward of money because you never do know when you're going to be on hard times. But it just seemed funny that he took uh, the Retina MacBook as seriously as he did and was so let down by it as he was. Um, probably the, the two things that kind of made me chuckle were uh, with regard to the keyboard and just not really liking the way the keyboard felt. Um, I have played on the Retina MacBook and the keyboard to me feels pretty compressed regardless of what folks say about, oh, the keys are bigger and they have better action. Well, yeah, they might, but uh, they still feel pretty squished together. Um, And then his other point about the Force Touch, uh, yeah, I... I don't know. I, I'm, I'm on the fence about Force Touch. I think it's neat the way that it works, but I don't know if it's really all that better than what we have today. Uh, I'm a fan of it. Uh, spent some time playing around with uh, the 13 inch uh, retinas when they had them and they came out. Yeah. Uh, you, you know, it, it really is kind of like one of those uh, magical whatever kind of things. Uh, you know, it really screws with your head pretty well. Uh, once you go ahead and um, sit down and have a go at it. Uh, and then, you know, for that keyboard thing, uh, you know, everybody's got their own preferences about that stuff, right? So uh, it is different. Uh, you know, I spent probably 15, 20 minutes just uh, doing some online typing stuff and running through, and um, I got by just fine with it. It didn't seem to have any problems or anything else. So, you know, it's very much a personal preference. Uh, I, I wouldn't disagree with you. I think from, from Marco's perspective, he also touched on uh, you know the fact that he felt that the upgrade was really a downgrade on like the MacBook Pros for the Force Touch. Uh, I kind of like it. I think it's neat that it taps back at you, but uh, I don't know. I'd need to kind of play play with it for a little bit longer. So I uh, I might be going over to the Apple Store and acquiring one for fourteen days and then taking it back. <laughs> Again, you can be our guinea pig. Yep. Um, speaking of the Ma- uh, Retina MacBook, though, there was a gentleman who took uh, Windows 10 and loaded it on and then loaded on, I guess, some of the boot camp drivers to make it work properly. And funny enough, he felt that Windows 10 worked better <laughs> than OS X did on the, uh, the Retina MacBook, which made me laugh quite a bit just because I'm thinking to myself, wait, how, how can it be running better with Windows 10 than OS X, which, yeah, Yosemite may not be built around the Retina MacBook, but you can't tell me they didn't put some uh, some hours into the engineering cycles for that. Uh, you know, if you buy a Mac to run Windows on it, like through Boot Camp or something else, you're probably setting yourself up for failure. Uh, the Boot Camp drivers are not great, 
uh, Apple does not keep them updated. Windows is not their primary OS. Uh, just take a look at iTunes on Windows, and that'll tell you kind of the quality of the drivers and the software and everything else that they have for that ecosystem. Uh, if you want to run things in VMs, awesome, works great, Stellar does everything it needs to do, uh, but you're not going to be running VMs on that MacBook either, right? And, you know, that whole fanless board and everything else, it doesn't quite have the juice to do it. Uh, even with the fancy RAM and fancy SSDs and, and other things that went into it. Uh, so get a 13-inch Retina MacBook Pro and go to town because it'll work uh, beautifully. Um, you know, it, it is what it is. If you're buying uh, something like that to run Windows on it, there's a bunch of other uh, Windows devices out there that are probably going to suit you uh, a little bit better. Like Dell has their uh, XPS 13, right? And that's got kind of the edge-to-edge -edge glass and touchscreen and uh, a bunch of other things that fit into that ecosystem uh, quite a bit better. Yeah, I think uh, <clears throat> I think something like that, uh, that HP Spectre 360 that they gave everybody a build uh, would probably be the device that I would want to put Windows 10 on and use, not, not a MacBook. Um, the one thing, uh, reading through the review the guy had done, uh, was... <laughs> All you could do is smile when he basically was like, yep, so unless you get a really, really nice touchpad for your uh, Windows 8.1 or Windows 8 device, um, you really can't beat these touchpads they've got on these Macs. So uh, I, I would not disagree with him on that. That's the one thing that is beautiful about OS X is just the way that it is able to do all that. Yeah, it's nice and fancy. Everybody should have a MacBook. And then do all your Windows work inside of VM. Well, yeah, I mean, wait, what? <laughs> uh, so, <laughs> okay. Yeah, let's let's think about that. Um, actually, the best is if you uh, run a VM and you then run Hyper-V inside that VM. Yeah, you're not supposed to do that. But you can <laughs> Yeah, mm, with great power comes great responsibility. Ah, yes. And with great responsibility comes Office 365 groups. Do people use those? Uh, you know, they're, they're still kind of in formation to be built out. Uh, there was a Yam Jam earlier today on Wednesday, the crap, on Thursday, May 21st. Um, so uh, Christoph and his team uh, got together and jammed it out with maybe about, I think there were about 20, 25 of us that were asking questions. Um, the questions that I popped up were mostly around, you know, how do I surface some of this stuff so that uh, it, uh, it, it doesn't screw with me as a SharePoint guy? Because uh, if you look at... Uh, if you go in, and I think we talked about this many weeks ago, but if I go create a group within Office 365, uh, it actually creates components that are used within a SharePoint site collection um, that I can't get to. So it creates a shell of a site collection, uh, creates a document library, a OneNote library with the assets, I guess the assets library with a OneNote uh, notebook inside of it and allows me to get to those through the group interface. Um, that group interface is actually something that's coming through the office graph. So it's, you know, it, it may look and smell like, uh, something, but it's really office graph pulling information in. 
Um, so it's even more interesting to think about because it shows up your files through OneDrive, um, through the Office Graph, but it shows up your uh, discussions and whatnot through the Outlook Online or Exchange Online component uh, of the Office Graph. So it gets a little confusing, but uh, essentially they aren't showing those because they didn't want to inadvertently let uh, someone delete that site collection and then destroy the group. Uh, so I guess there is method to their madness. Um, a couple of us said, well, why didn't you just create the group's uh, managed path? And they went back and they said, well, we thought about that. And then we scanned across all of uh, Office 365 and found that uh, the slash groups was already created as a subsite to a lot of people's main site. Um which, you know, is smart. You don't want to piss everybody off and create uh, a new managed path and then inadvertently hide someone's subsite. But to me, I, I think I would have probably just said, you know, hey, we're going to send out a, you know, notice to all administrators that within one week you need to figure out a way to move to your site um, out of that name. Uh, is what it is, I guess. But, oh, well. Um, there were a lot of other things out there. So if you're on the Office 365 IT Pro Network, uh, you can go read through the comments and whatnot. Uh, it, it definitely was just kind of interesting to be able to chat back and forth with the product group and give them some ideas, make some feature requests, uh, and toss other little tidbits of, hey, have you thought about um, their way? And they were pretty good about answering questions. Uh, they weren't, you know, negative in any way. They were very, very open, which was, uh, which was cool to see. So, yep. Good times. Yeah. Um, uh, the group stuff is interesting to me. It's kind of like OneDrive. Uh, so it doesn't make those information managers really happy, right? Because it's all about the, uh, unstructured data, so there's this transition, you know, that everybody's got to go through to get to the point where um, maybe having dynamic groups isn't the end of the world. Uh, there's going to be less rigor around that stuff today. Um, hopefully they bring along the ability at some point for groups to have some more uh, management around the, the metadata for documents that go in there. Uh, you, you know, sometimes it'd be nice to have maybe... Um, something really simple like enterprise keywords uh, or even, you know, enterprise content types pushed down from a hub or something like that uh, just for organizations that have those bits and pieces in place. Uh, the group thing can also be a little confusing depending on how you're accessing it. Uh, so, you know, uh, it seems at least from my side today, the, the best experience is kind of, uh, through the online components. So if you're browsing through the web um, and you're getting it through uh, Outlook Online uh, or Exchange Online, things like that, um, it tends to be pretty solid and, and get you everything that you need. Um, but if you've seen it in the Office 2016 previews, um, you know you can go into something like Outlook, like the desktop client Outlook, and you have access to your groups there as well. Um, and it just looks and feels a little bit different. And uh, you're not always quite sure where things are going and what they're doing. And maybe you don't need to be, but mm, it doesn't always give me the warm fuzzies, uh, you know, when you see things going on like that. 
Um, and then like you man- uh, mentioned, just some of the management stuff. Uh, you, you know, the thing, the fact that these things are provisioned kind of um, out in the ether, you, you know, so you're not able to manage kind of uh, the underlying site collections and things like that. Uh, can be a little confusing or a little disconcerting if you're trying to uh, maintain a little bit more control over your tenancies. So I think a lot of that's just a a byproduct of the decoupling that they've gone through because all this stuff starts in Azure AD. And then there's kind of timer jobs that kick off in the background and do things like create your site collections. And then, um, you know, you've got these other other bits and pieces that need to go off and do some stuff in exchange. And uh, so everything's been decoupled really nicely, but, you know, I think it's led to uh, some of that experience and uh, they've gotten away with it in some other places and some other products. So, uh, you know, I think to a certain degree, maybe they think it's acceptable. Um, You know, there's some weird things like if uh, think like the new portal experience, right. To, uh, take it a different way. So now we've got um, kind of these pre-built portals and we've had the Office 365 Video Hub for a while. So th- when you upload a video to the Video Hub, um, that's going ahead and pushing some files out to Azure Media Services, um, but it's not pushing it to an Azure subscription that you own. So you really don't know where it's going, what it's doing. Maybe you would like some more control over the rendering and things that um, go on, or you'd like to be able to use like the Azure Media Player and surface those things someplace else, uh, but you really can't because pretty much that entire service is managed uh, by Microsoft and everything that goes on there. Um, they, they had some really weird things, uh, you know. They've done this in other platforms as well. So like Azure, uh, when Remote App first came out, and you'd be sitting there pushing images up and around and things like that. Uh, you know, you'd be, you'd be uploading huge VHD and it wouldn't be going into your own Azure subscription. It'd be going into something that was owned by that service management group. And, um, you know, here it is just off in the ether doing its thing. And you've kind of lost some control and some management there. Um, so maybe that's acceptable for, uh, you know, more and more people as time goes on. Uh, but I know a lot of folks that it doesn't make comfortable to uh, lose some of that control. You know, it's one thing to lose functionality. It's another thing to lose some control over the data and the bits and pieces in the background. So uh, if you, so we've got in the show notes, the IT pro network, the actual link to it. Um, but if you go into that discussion, uh, there's a lot where, you know, folks kind of mention, Hey, uh, we still need to be able to do some of this information management stuff. And they're very aware of that. They realize that. They understand that. I think it's more just uh, helping them, you know, get through that uh, that piece of it. Right now, like you said, they're trying to go through and build the experience. Um, and they realize they need to put in some of the, I guess, for less of a better term, uh, some of the back plumbing to make it all work. So especially from that compliance perspective, um, yeah, so it, if you've got a minute, you know, hop over to that, uh, that session. Uh, it was interesting use of an hour, um, to, you know, kind of look over and see things streaming by and then occasionally throw a question out, uh, based on other questions that were popping in, um, wasn't quite as big as I thought it would have been. I thought it would have been many more people, uh, poking with questions, but I guess, uh, you know, people do have day jobs and since they're holding at nine in the morning Pacific, 
that may not be super conducive to everybody to, you know, hop on. But Yeah, you know, there are people that live on the other side of the world. Yeah, and then there's people in Australia having a terrible, very bad, horrible day. Um, just, so, just like Alexander. Uh, yeah, I know. Um, so, Scott, tell me more about this thing with uh, SharePoint Online renaming from sh- uh, Microsoft Online to SharePoint.com. What, what's up with that? Uh, so there was a support article that came out uh, earlier this week. Again, saw this one pop up in the feed from uh, Dan Holm. So uh, if you happen to have a legacy SharePoint Online site, so something that existed uh, in the domain of MicrosoftOnline.com, uh, that is actually going to be pushed over to the uh, wildcard SharePoint.com uh, over the next little bit. So that's for the sometime in the second quarter of 2015. Uh, any sites that use MicrosoftOnline.com, uh, they're going to be pushed over to this new URL format, uh, and that might break a bunch of things. Uh, if you hadn't been migrated or in your, you're in a legacy tenant, something like that. So uh, this kind of is uh, a, a lot of the things that are going to break are going to be the same things that go wrong or that we look to mitigate or fix in a regular migration, right? Um, so all of a sudden all the URLs change. Well, that means every bookmark that's out there that's bad, and that means existing bookmarks um, you know, browsers and things like that are easy to fix, but if you have embedded bookmarks and documents and other things, uh, that's going to be pretty tough. Um, if you've bought into the whole OneDrive for business thing and you're using that heavily with sync, uh, the sync client is going to break because it doesn't know how to get to that, uh, new format URL automatically. Like they're not doing a redirect or anything like that. Uh, it's going to take uh, search results a couple of days to catch up. So potentially you're going to have this period of, um, you know, probably two to five days, depending on how much data is out in your tenant and how long it takes to get through and do the new full crawls with the new uh, URLs and everything. But you're going to have a, a bit of time uh, where search is going to kind of be useless and broken. Uh, if you were using navigation in the term store, uh, that's going to go and be broken. It's going to need to be updated and adjusted. Uh, you know, if you're using URLs and promoted results, those don't automatically get updated. Uh, let's see what else. Uh, if you're using externally hosted apps uh, or add-ins, uh, those are going to need to be reinstalled on each and every site. Uh, hopefully, mm, you know, you don't have to make too many changes to your firewalls or anything if, uh, you know, IT pros have been managing that stuff. Uh, and then, uh, one other big one is if you're using like records management, those send to connections, yeah, you're going to have to go configure all that stuff again as well. So mm, hopefully they give customers a little bit of notice, um, as to the exact date that their particular tenancy will come across, uh, because they're going to have to go take a look at just a few things uh, to make sure that it goes with uh, just a little bit of pain. And there's going to be pain no matter what, because it's migration, and migrations are always painful. I thought Todd Clint was the master of migrations, though. Uh, Todd Clint is the master of migrations, uh, or at least those database attached ones, but... Uh, <laughs> 
I've, I've never seen any such thing as a pain-free migration. Uh, I don't know if you have or not. I, I don't think you have based on the talks and conversations we've had. Uh, you know, it's, it's hard to do these things. Um, and this one is going to carry a lot of actions for customers. So, you know, for anybody that missed this support article, again, hopefully uh, admins of those tenants are getting emails related just to their tenancies. Hopefully. Um, speaking of emails, uh, I actually got an email from uh, Microsoft about downtime and one of their other services they host out of GFS, the Global Foundation Services. Um, they were doing virtual machine maintenance on me apparently yesterday, and I didn't notice a darn thing. <laughs> yeah, uh, they're pretty good about those notices for Azure, right? So uh, if they're pushing things around or doing anything like that, they're normally on top of it and they let you know how to run things in AV sets to make sure you're up and running the entire time. Yep. Uh, speaking of uh, other things cloudy, that uh, that stepchild that has uh, been forced to live out in the doghouse for the past uh, what, two years now uh, finally got allowed to live in the house. So Yammer finally moved into Microsoft data centers. Um, it now can live under the same uh, security and, you know, love and care and nurture that the rest of Microsoft's Global Foundation Services live under. Woohoo! Yeah, so if, if you were using Yammer earlier this week and you were going, what the heck, why is performance crap? Uh, I think, <laughs> I think like any other migration, they probably hit some stumbling blocks. Um, I'm not quite certain what they were. Um, but uh, Yammer did seem a little bit sluggish on uh, on Monday of this week post-migration. Um, my only guess is that part of it was due to the fact that a lot of folks hadn't cleared out the browser cache, like me, uh, or folks had not necessarily gone and you know rebooted their routers and forced them to flush all of their DNS cache um, so that they would not time out pointing at the old stuff that uh, where Yammer used to be hosted for like asset. Uh, libraries and whatnot. So seems to be working nicely again. Um, and I'm excited to see what this means for Yammer, uh, you know, to be able to start uh, inheriting some of the things that uh, the goodness, I guess you could call it, uh, that Office 365 and Azure get from GFS or, you know, Xbox, you know, so all these different systems that live inside GFS. Mm, hopefully. Uh, did you see Sway came into Office 365 today as well? I did. Um, that was uh, one of those where, I, I don't know, man. I'm, I'm still not a super huge fan of Sway. Um, Tay Sway, she's cool, but Sway, uh, I don't know. I'm just kind of torn on it. It seems like an interesting idea. Um, if you've used uh, Prezi before, it seems sort of like Prezi, but the fact that you can build it, I guess, from PowerPoint, is that is that correct? You can build it from a PowerPoint plugin, I think. Um, seems like a neat thing. Uh, my concern, and I know, hey, Dan, you should just go research it and understand how it works, uh, is where do you actually store them and can you store them on-premises or are you stuck storing them in the cloud? Uh, so let's see. So today they exist only in the cloud because to the cloud. Uh, so it's available for first release customers, uh, in, uh, typical cloudy fashion. It is on by default, uh, but you can shut it off for your tenant. Uh, I had a chance to 
hop in and see. Uh, normally, uh, for my employer, uh, you know, the admins get a little, mm, a little trigger happy, and they kind of shut things off right away because mm, you know we're not allowed to always have the latest and greatest fun toys and things like that. But they happen to leave Sway on. Uh, maybe they just missed it in the admin portal or whatever. Uh, so it went live, and it actually doesn't have SSO yet. <laughs> uh, so you know how long it took for us to get uh, SSO with Office 365 and our actual uh, Azure AD credentials um, and kind of that handshake and bit that goes on there. So if your users are, at least in my tenancy, the way it's working, coming across, you know, I go ahead and click on Sway, and then I get over to the Sway site, and it asks me to log in. And then it asks me if I'm using a Microsoft account or a work account and the whole thing, and it tries to figure it out. And then all of a sudden I'm in, and oh, look, there's my Sways. Um, but that's it. They, they exist up there. They're uh, stored up on uh, Sway.com, just like they would be if you were in the preview or you were using it with a uh, Microsoft account prior to this. Uh, like you said, all the same functionality. Uh, go ahead and uh, import it from Word, PowerPoint, PDF, things like that. Uh, because it does have a switch in the Office 365 Admin Center, uh, hopefully there might be some more controls coming around that. Uh, so maybe over time we'll get um, things around compliance or uh, DLP or things like that. Maybe that yeah. makes uh, everybody feel you know warm and fuzzy. Yeah, I guess the, uh, the, the little bit you mentioned about SSO, that kind of makes me giggle that they don't have that totally working yet. Um, I'm guessing it's just uh, <clears throat> we'll see that fixed sometime shortly once they add the Sway Realm into the token that users get when they log into Office 365's login page. Um, and I only say that because, uh, you know, if, if you go to Office Online, or I guess what, office.com, uh, and go use the online component, that asks you, hey, you're coming in with a work ID or you're coming in with a, a Microsoft account. <laughs> and, you know, that obviously you're basically hitting the same servers. If you go in uh, and you're already logged into Office 365, it just knows that realm and it says, oh, here you go. And it kicks you in there. So uh, my guess is they would get that fixed uh, sometime shortly by just adding in, you know, extra realm field into your uh, your resource token. Yeah, identity's hard, but I think that's another show. Uh, is it though? Uh, I think that one's a deep dive. Ah, uh, man, I was really hoping to talk about identity today. <laughs> well, well, we'll put it in follow up, and then we can just have an hour of follow up next week. There we go. <laughs> no, it <laughs> doesn't float your boat. Uh, poor people. <laughs> Well, I'm just going to mute my mic and walk away for like an hour or so. It'll be the, the Dan show. Uh, okay. Yeah. Okay. Um, so, uh, so some of the other Office 365 news, not related to identity, although it does have kind of that role-based uh, component to it, which sometimes gets confused with identity. Uh, Microsoft Office 365 team, Ignite, blah, excuse me, announced at the Ignite conference that they were going to add in some enhancements and delegation capabilities to uh, what you could do with the Office 365 platform. So in the past, if you wanted to give somebody the ability to uh, go in and manage Exchange Server, um, you could 
go in and add them as like a exchange admin through the exchange control panel. Um, uh, you used to be able to go, you, you probably still can go to uh, Office 365, excuse me, if you go to whatever the slash ECP component is, um, you could go in and you could add somebody to the role of, you know, administrator for Exchange. And as long as they knew what the URL was to forward slash ECP, uh, they could go in and administer that. You wouldn't have to give them additional privileges in the Office 365 platform. If they didn't know that URL, even if they were the Exchange admin, they were hosed and they could never actually do anything that they wanted to. Um, likewise, from the SharePoint perspective, I could only give somebody access to SharePoint if I gave them global admin access. So while that's neat, um, I don't, you know, necessarily trust some people, uh, to be the SharePoint admin going in and creating a BCS connection or site collections and also have the power to go in and create, uh, mailboxes and other entities inside of Exchange. So... You know, it's, it's it's neat that they're adding in this role-based access where uh, I can go in and give delegated control just to SharePoint or just to Exchange, um, which is really handy because then it exposes that to them and you don't have to worry about, you know, uh, going in and fiddling with administration and whatnot. Um, so they're trying to do more delegated access for the different services so that they're limited in what they have from an administrator per, uh, perspective. But, uh, you know, I'd be interested to see if they're going to break this down the way that Exchange does. Um, if you've ever gone into the Exchange admin, you know, the Exchange control panel uh, and gone into the access section, oh, my gosh, there's tons of different uh, different roles you can throw people into in there. Um, so we're not there yet, but, you know, this is definitely a good first step to getting folks to that delegated access where, uh, they can just log in and get to the area of expertise they need to. So all you IT pros that are worried about uh, losing your job as your Skype for Business administrator, uh, have no fear. You can still go in and do your administration just for that one piece and not have to worry about the rest of Office 365. So good stuff. Yeah, I, I think for a lot of that stuff, we're waiting on support from uh, Azure AD, right? So for all those additional roles and features and things like that. So, uh, we've always got to remember that, uh, that service is pinned by, uh, our identities that are stored in Azure AD. So even if you go and spin up just a blank Azure AD tenant and you create a new user and you want to assign them an initial role, you're going to see that it has this Funny enough, uh, the same exact roles that are available in Office 365. So I can be a billing administrator, subscription administrator, global admin, uh, all those kind of things. So maybe they can extend that out to the uh, either the, the, the group side of thing, uh, and maybe we get some additional um, access controls there. Or maybe it becomes an app thing, right, where we've got um, Azure AD apps, and those all have delegated permissions. Uh, so maybe there's an app that can be created that says, hey, let me be the exchange guy. And then for the exchange service, here's the myriad of options that, that come on down. You know, here's my, uh, you know, dozens and dozens of different permissions that I have uh, just to not clutter up that UI and keep those things there. Or they just say, hey, you know what, this is an online service and we manage a lot of that stuff for you. So tough luck. Uh, but hey, 50 gig mailboxes, have fun. 
uh, <laughs> you, you know, and, and they'll let you run around and, and do all those little bits and pieces that uh, hopefully make you happy. Yeah, the you mentioned you know things we're waiting on and Azure AD be wanting, <laughs> being one of them. Um, there was actually a question uh, that got posed inside the Yam Jam about groups, and you know why is it we can't have uh, security groups that are synced from on-prem AD as members of a group uh, in <clears throat> as a Office three sixty five group and. Uh, basically, you know, they came back and they said, well, groups don't support other groups as members. Um, so people were throwing in feature requests. I, you know, kind of made mention of, because I've done some digging around on this, um, about the Azure AD and how it uh, toys into this, but you're familiar with uh, distribution groups in Exchange? Yep. Yeah, so those things aren't meant for security purposes, right? Absolutely. Um, so... Oddly enough, uh, if you go in and you create a, uh, a group, you add people to it, it actually creates a distribution group. Um, it doesn't create a security group. Huh. It does, it does. And, uh, you know, if, if anybody watched that group session with uh, Christoph at uh, Ignite and he goes through and he's doing the naming and he calls it the uh, group and then it says, oh, you can't use that word in your group name. Um, yeah, that's driven out of the same kind of rules engine for exchange and naming of our distribution groups. So uh, your gal doesn't get all gunked up with, um, you know, groups named after um, bodily functions and things like that. So, yeah, so apparently it's... Uh, <laughs> um, so one of the Microsoft guys replied back to me and said, the group object in AD is a group type object. So you will see a lot of similarities with the objects representing distribution lists. However, there are subtle differences. <laughs> uh, what? And then one of the other Microsoft guys said, well, an Office 365 in the service, and when you sync it to on-prem, if you're using right back with Azure AD Premium, uh, it'll show up as a distribution list. Um, oddly enough, uh, one of, you know, one of the guys continued on saying Office 365 groups are a new group type and you can share documents with Office 365 groups in the cloud. Please bear in mind that Office 365 groups are synced back to on-premise via 8.8 AAD Connect. They will be represented as distribution groups in the on-prem directory. Um, and they kind of continue to go on and some other stuff. But then it was funny because, uh, Victor Villain or Victor Willen, I have no clue how to pronounce his name. I own some scotch. Uh, he basically said, you know, according to the Unified Group's PowerShell, you should be able to select between security and distribution list group types. Um, so there's a little bit of confusion. Um, if you go back and watch that deep dive on groups, though, uh, they, do, they do go through the whole provisioning process. And like you mentioned, you know, they talk about it, how uh, it goes in and it fires up a message. It says, hey, Exchange, go create this group. Hey, SharePoint, go create this group. Hey, uh, Azure Active Directory, go create this. And, you know, it kind of goes down that whole path. So it's uh, interesting how Azure AD is getting all wrapped up in this. And it, it's kind of terrifying at the same time because it's going to make so many changes to my on-premises AD that uh, I think it's going to confuse some of the local AD guys. Yeah, only if you're using that AD premium stuff, though. And, not, you know, not everybody's using that because it's still uh, that VL or uh, extra, you know, open licensing thing. So you get a small subset of that stuff by being an Office 365 subscriber. But one of the things that you don't get back 
uh, is the right back support, right? So you've got to go out and specifically buy that Azure AD premium SKU and go ahead and add that in or do the trial or however you want to do it um, to push those bits and pieces through. Um, you know, this is kind of agile development at its finest, right? So uh, everybody's plowing ahead and uh, we're going to fix things as they come up. So, uh, you know, the way groups are provisioned and managed, a little bit weird, um, especially when you consider kind of how they're set up and positioned, right? Like, uh, gee, it should be nice if those groups could have been security groups maybe, because um, then we could use like Azure AD dynamic groups and that would help with some of the membership stuff because then we would just have a dynamic group and that dynamic group would have some rules on it and, you know, maybe that adds everybody in my C-suite and the C-suite group and, you know, all those different things. And then, oh, gee, wouldn't it be nice? They get a site and a OneNote notebook and all the things they need to do maybe to manage, you know, board meetings or something else. You know, that'd be really cool. Um, and then, you know, you look at the flip side of it and there's all the cleanup stuff. So uh, what do you want to do when you want to retire a group today? Uh, how do you clean that up and manage it and make sure the data goes away or maybe it gets pushed to where it needs to be or archived or something else? Uh, you really don't. Uh, so hopefully, you know, those features come down the pipe at some point as well. Some point. <clears throat> some point. Yeah. Uh, let's see. So let's see. You want to talk about some SharePoint stuff? Wait, people still use that? They do. Huh. I think. So, you know, uh, I, I saw something that uh, Bill Bear was tweeting the other day. And uh, this this guy who runs this website, PS Config, um, kind of captured all of it, and uh, it, it was interesting to see some of the things that Bill was throwing out there. Um, I don't do you do you know uh, that guy that cap captured all those? Yeah, his name's Dan Usher. Um, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. You should go read his blog, SharePoint Dan. It's really uh, cool. Um, um, so so Bill's been busy, right? So yeah. Uh, Ignite wrapped up and he did a, uh, an IT unity kind of, uh, he's been doing this series with Dan home, you know, let's ask Bill anything. Um, so we did a post Ignite wrap up, which, uh, was pretty interesting. If folks haven't checked that one out, uh, he had a blog post out on his TechNet blog, um, taking a deeper dive into what's new in SharePoint 2016, uh, specifically around installation and deployment. So uh, kind of talking about uh, some of the stuff from his uh, deep dive session at Ignite, uh, but more around system requirements and the deployment scenarios and what's going to happen there. Um, and he took a little bit more of a dive into Mineral. Uh, so, you know, we talked about this a little bit in the past and how maybe uh, you know, mineral can be a little bit off-putting because all of a sudden we've got servers that don't have everything they need. And what if we rip one out of the farm? Um, I'm still kind of going back and forth on some of that stuff. Uh, you know, I think if uh, I can, I, I still haven't been able to get to the point with some of my SharePoint deployments that we do in the cloud and things like that up in Azure or AWS about treating uh, SharePoint servers as cattle. Uh, so, you know, we have, we often talk about uh, servers in the cloud um, they really don't need names. Uh, let's treat them as disposable resources. They should be able to be trashed at any time. Uh, but, you know, we really can't do that with some of these systems. But if we can get there with something like SharePoint and this mineral thing, uh, it's going to make that promise of zero downtime patching 
um, and all those other bits and pieces quite a bit easier. So I could get behind that. Maybe that makes uh, upgrades and things like that a bit easier as well, because there's less services to push out and all, all that other um, stuff. Uh, so Bill had that article that's out there. It's on his blog, which is uh, great stuff. Uh, and then uh, the other day, uh, back on uh, May 20th, uh, so what was that? That would have been Wednesday. Uh, so maybe it was Tuesday for Bill. Uh, you know, he, he got a little froggy and he was out on Twitter and he was just uh, tweeting a bunch of stuff. Um, so in his session at Ignite, uh, they talked about some of the new uh, uh, software limits. Uh, so we had things around like the 5,000 uh, items to a list view threshold. Uh, that's going away, uh, 100,000 uh, site collections, um, and a terabyte plus uh, content database, uh, not a problem. You know, you know, SharePoint 2016 will be able to scale to that in SQL 2014. Um, but he also had some other interesting things in there. So uh, he says, per item encryption, yep, we did that. So uh, that'll be pretty neat. So they, they hopefully they've got some new uh, stuff for us on that side. Uh, responsive master pages on the branding side, uh, that'll be pretty good. Uh, so on top of that per item encryption, he also had uh, encryption in motion. Uh, so, you know, maybe there's some new requirements around SSL or maybe they've got some uh, additional uh, logic built into that, um, along with some audit stuff, right? So who clicked uh, what and when did they do it? He says, we've got you covered. Um, so maybe there's been some improvements to SharePoint auditing. Uh, that would be awesome. Um, and he also talks about uh, sign in as a different user and how that functionality is back. So um, apparently they managed to sort out that whole big thing that they managed to uh, kind of break back in 2013. And uh, he left it with, uh, wait until we announce the one big thing for SharePoint 2016, uh, which he says is gonna change the way we think about SharePoint. Um, Looking forward to whatever that one is, right? Maybe it means uh, uh, we're all going to Lotus. I, I don't know. Uh, we'll, we'll see what he uh, what they come out with and say. Uh, so I don't I don't know. I you know I think you read through that some of that stuff up on my blog. I'm sure you have some thoughts on it too. There was some uh, DLP ish kind of stuff in there, right? Around uh, sensitive information and what we can post up. So. Uh, you know, what if they knew a document contained a social security number or credit card number, things like that. So they have some of that functionality with like uh, e-discovery today. Uh, you can go out and figure out that stuff. Um, but if they can prevent it on the front end, uh, even better. Yeah. So a lot of this stuff though, I'm curious if it's all behind or all with, uh, uh, you know, how they, they talk about uh, SharePoint. 2016 is extended through the cloud. Uh, a lot of those things, like the search service application, talked about, oh, yeah, you got that now. Now you've got the compliance center that you can use from Office 365 on your on-prem stuff because it shows up. So I'm curious if that is you know, where some of this is being driven from. Um, but also, really, I am I am very curious what he's talking about with the uh, – uh, the data in motion, I guess, was that it? Um, uh, encryption in motion. Yeah. So I'm really curious about that one. That seems pretty darn interesting to me. And then the per item uh, encryption, that also is interesting to me. Although they kind of already are doing that now with the OneDrive for Business cloud-based. So I'm curious. 
you know, I, I think they're probably going to take that and say, well, we're re-architecting the way that storage works on the back end. Uh, here you go. Um, that's the only way I could think they were doing that because right now, uh, if you go out and you read through how OneDrive for Business works with the Fort Knox techno- technology, um, they're chunking it into Azure storage containers. They're not putting it in, you know, content databases on the back end. So that's the only way I could see them doing that uh, with SharePoint 2016. Um, the one that really just, you know, made me go, holy crap, they're going to have that many more versions of SharePoint uh, was one of his tweets where he says, sign in as a different user. It's back SharePoint 2026. So I think Bill's leaning forward and he's showing <laughs> that they're committed to on-premises for quite some time. Yeah, either that or it was a typo. Oh, yeah, could have been. Um, <laughs> yeah, uh, you know, some of that stuff would be really neat. There's a lot of customers that look for uh, those security and compliance bits on-premises. Uh, so I, I'm sure you've probably done deployments where uh, you've had to implement uh, TDE, uh, so the transparent data encryption on the SQL server side for uh, data at rest. Um, and, you know, TDE can be uh, a little weird sometimes, and typically uh, we end up with uh, extra SQL instances and things like that because the encryption keys live at the instance level and uh, all, the, all that other kind of stuff. So anything they can do to make that side of the uh, equation a little bit easier, um, that's going to make a lot of customers happy. It'll make them happy. It'll make them happy. Oh, wait, that's what you just said. Um, so the other thing to kind of consider through all this, though, uh, he did <laughs> a lot of this stuff. If you had watched the session on what's new for SharePoint 2016 uh, for IT pros from Ignite, you would have known all this, I think, except for where he talks about the per item encryption, the responsive master pages, uh, the encryption in motion and the slow links piece that the slow links piece, I kind of was like, huh, weird. How are they going to do that? Um, but I guess, I guess we'll see once they get those, uh, tech Night articles out there. Um, I will be very interested to, you know, dig into them and see what's up. Yeah. End of the year. You're getting a Christmas present. Woohoo. Um, so some other SharePointy stuff. Uh, Bill also, I think you mentioned this, um, he put out a kind of follow-up article to that session, the What's New in SharePoint Server 2016. Um, so if you wander over to his blog on TechNet, you can grab all that. It was published back on the 12th. Uh, there's nothing really new in there uh, outside of what the talk had, but it's a good reference to at least have all of the uh, uh, all of the you know links and whatnot in one spot, so... Thought that was yep. fairly helpful. So he said he's going to publish one of those a month, uh, or at least he said, you know, wait until next month when the next one comes out. So that'll be pretty neat to see. Uh, there was an article that came out on um, uh, the Redmond like partner channel, uh, RCP Mag, um, talking about deprecated tooling in SharePoint 2016. So, you know, we've got InfoPath and kind of form services, which still sits at that 2013 level. Nothing's happening there. Um, but we've also got the inclusion of App Fabric uh, within SharePoint 2016. Um, so they talked a little bit about that. And Bill was in a Yam Jam on that Office 365 uh, IT Pro network. And, you know, they talked about how um, 
you know, kind of similar to the way uh, the version of FIM that was built into SharePoint was. Um, now App Fabric is going to be its own thing. It's still going to be supported, um, but only for these specific tools. So App Fabric for that's included with the prereq installer for SharePoint 2013 and 2016, that'll be supported. But doing standalone App Fabric um, still dies uh, next April, uh, like it was announced a couple months ago that that it was going to do. Yep, which uh, is <clears throat> is helpful to know because I know some folks were. Freaking out. They were like, wait, what are they going to use for caching services? What are they going to do with all this? Are they just going to tear all this out? How's it going to be different? What's going to be, what's going on, guys? What's going on? So, uh, I'm, I'm interested to, uh, see how they continue to support that through its life cycle. DCS isn't going anywhere, True unfortunately. That. Um, so a couple things not to hop away from the SharePoint stuff, but to me, there wasn't that much more SharePoint stuff that was all that interesting going on. Maybe you would disagree with me. Uh, I would never disagree with you. I would just tell you that you're wrong. Fair enough. Um, <laughs> okay. Uh, so anything else in the SharePoint world you want to cover, Scott? No, I think we're good. Okay. Um, so back in that world of uh, azure stuff, uh, this came out, I guess, during Ignite, but no one really hopped on it, or at least it didn't seem like many people hopped on it to me. Um, or it could just be I haven't been logged into Twitter or TweetFace or any of that stuff recently to actually see things uh, popping up. But user-defined networking, um, apparently it's a thing now in Azure. So, uh, you know, one of the things that uh, always killed me was Azure takes care of uh, kind of the routing on the back end, so I can try and tell it, "Hey, you need to uh, you need to always use this gateway," or, "Hey, uh, I'm going to use network security groups, and I'm going to try try to control and constrain where my packets go." Um, but in reality, you're not really doing jack squat. You're uh, just adding more overhead into your environment. Um, so they're adding in this ability to effectively add route tables to each and every VNet so that you can uh, actually take that back. They're adding in route tables to each and every subnet um, so you can define you know what the next hop is instead of just having to rely on Azure to figure it out for you. Um, so word of wisdom, uh, do not mess with these if you don't need to, but if you have uh, some scenario um, that, you know, you basically are telling them, hey, now I need to have a proxy that sits in front of these three uh, these three web app servers, um, and I'm paying for this proxy. I don't feel like setting up all this other junk through network security groups and whatnot. Um, you can now do that where you tell it, hey, the next stop is actually really going over here. How they are constraining that on the back end, I don't know. They didn't really get into the details of that, so I don't know if that means, you know, they're putting in a virtual switch for you on the back end or updating something along those lines. But uh, it helps out tremendously when I'm working out these scenarios that uh, folks are complaining that they want to know how the routing works. Yeah, I'd be willing to bet it's uh, some magic with RAS. So we've always had the RAS servers that drive our site-to-site VPNs. And, you know, those were... Uh, when the site-to-site VPNs initially came out, or that whole VPN mechanism, uh, it was pretty limited. There were some bandwidth limitations, and um, I'm sure you've noticed if you go ahead and spin up a new subnet, 
and or you create a VNet, you create a subnet within it, and you spin up your very first server in that subnet. So it'll always come up at the IP like .4. So say we were doing like um, 192.168.0.0, and we were just doing like a slash 24. Our first VM that always came up would be at 192.168.0.4. Um, so the gateway was always taken care of by Azure. And then there were always two little VMs kind of sitting in the background, handling all the routing and everything else. And those were just little RAS boxes. And then, you know, we could spin up VPNs and everything else. And uh, that whole gateway piece would be spun up through those boxes as well. And over time, they've added more and more capability to that, right? So today, uh, you can actually uh, have a little bit, control, little bit of control around um, the sizing of those gateways and what goes into them. And as they've been able to up the gateway sizes and probably allocate more resources to those RAS boxes, um, they've been able to bring in uh, more and more functionality. Uh, so uh, now, you know, in the past, if you use something like ExpressRoute, uh, that gateway had to sit on uh, its own uh, VPN gateway. So it would be over in its own VNet doing its own thing. Um, so one of the things they announced at Ignite is you can do VPN gateways with site-to-site -site VPNs and ExpressRoute uh, coexisting. So now you get some really cool scenarios where basically, uh, you know, if you want to go down the express route um, piece, but you want to have some redundancy built into that, uh, you can actually have a site-to-site -site VPN up as well. So if the express route connection ever goes down, you lose that uh, MPLS for some reason, whatever it may be, uh, maybe the site-to-site -site VPN can pick things up, uh, pick things up on there as well. Um, and then all of that ties into the user-defined routing stuff that you mentioned. So uh, they specifically mentioned in the announcement of that and the bits and pieces that came out with that. Um, if you want to use user-defined routes and you're also using express routes, uh, you're going to be able to bring in your own routes with uh, BGP. Uh, so I'd be willing to bet it's kind of that same infrastructure in the background that's driving um, a lot of that stuff. Um, and then, like you said, it brings in the ability now to all of a sudden start to run some of these new virtual appliances um, that are going to be coming out over time. So uh, there's a bunch of um, application firewalls, like web application firewalls from uh, like Barracuda and things like that that are in the pipeline. Um, and you're also going to have a bunch of load balancers. You know, we've already got Kemp and things like that out there, but uh, I believe F5, um, like big IP load balancers are in the pipeline to be released. Um, it's going to let you do all sorts of interesting scenarios. So do the reverse proxy stuff. Uh, maybe you want to build out your own NAT and not rely on the um, the Azure NATing um, for some reason. Well, hey, now you can go ahead and um, have the ability to do that. Uh, and, you, you know, this all builds on top of all the networking enhancements that have come out. So you combine this with something like um, being able to define your own address spaces. So, you know, you know in the past we used to have to use... Um, private address spaces only. Uh, and, you know, that's been wide open. So now effectively you can have a fully software defined network uh, on your terms. So it's going to be just the services you consume and what you pay for them. Uh, so as long as you're good with the bill, um, you can kind of have at it and pick and choose what you want Microsoft to manage or what you want to manage yourself. Uh, like you said, I would caution anyone to avoid getting in there and saying, uh, just because I can build out my own network and my own routing tables and do everything that I can do on premises, 
you might not want to hop in and do that on day one. Uh, it's nice to explore the platform and uh, get it to uh, maybe the place it should be rather than the place you are today. Yeah, I think uh, <clears throat> I think to me this just opens up uh, you know the gamut of what you can do, um, especially. And you and I both know this when we're trying to teach people about how Azure networking works or how AWS networking works, it's always a pain in the butt because they say, but that's not how it works on premises. Um, so hopefully this opens up the doors to be able to do a lot more, um, or at least get the network engineers that like to do things on premises to adopt things in the cloud. Um, one of the things though that kind of hinted that this was coming, um, if you went in, you could actually, you could do, I think it was like a get subnet route table. Um, get Azure subnet route table and it came back and it only displayed anything if you were using, uh, I think express route. Um, it would only show something if you were using express route and it's like, well, that's useless. What good is that? <laughs> um, so it, it, you know, I guess it is good that they finally came true, came through on, uh, providing a little bit more flexibility. And I, I don't think AWS actually can do this. I know they have the ability to, uh, it's like turning off something um, so that you can use your own overlaid network um, to get it to, you know, force traffic where you want it to go, but it's not quite as granular as this is. Yeah, this is uh, a, a little bit more out there from at least what I know of the AWS networking stack as well. Um, you can get pretty close with both of them. Um, you know, Again, I, I would caution just because you're a network guy and just because you can doesn't mean you should. Uh, you know, I found with a lot of engagements uh, that I've got to work on, um, it actually helps to stay, take a step back and do kind of some of that architectural redesign and say, let's retool things and get them more over to the platform side of things. Because uh, what's going to happen is if you take your deployment as is and you just shove it up into something like Azure... Um, over time, you're probably going to want to adopt more of the platform services and you're not going to be able to because you've kind of locked yourself into this old way of doing things. So, uh, you know, if you've got to go through a wholesale migration or redesign or anything else, uh, take a step back and, and think about um, all the bits and pieces that are available to you. Yeah, hopefully, uh, hopefully, you know, we'll have that as well. The pendulum will not swing so far that all of our on-premises network engineers think that they now can run the cloud the way they run on-premises, but uh, it's still exciting stuff. Always. Yep. Um, so Scott, uh, you know, we're, we're running up on an hour, hour and 30 minutes. Uh, say folks are, you know, their, their ears are bleeding, their eyes are spinning back into their heads and they're going, man, there's just so much content. How can I go read up what these guys were talking about? Um, how would they find uh, show notes for this? Uh, so our show notes are always available in the same place uh, at the same time, uh, you know, same bat channel, all, all that good stuff. Uh, so we publish all the show notes uh, into the RSS feed if anybody subscribes to this podcast, right? So that's pub.brewery.fm slash brewfeed, uh, or you can find us in iTunes, uh, we're brewery.fm. Uh, we'd always like some uh, feedback, ratings, things like that. Those go a long way to help us. Uh, and if you're looking at us online or you want to find us that way, uh, we have the website, uh, pub.brew or 
just brewery.fm rather. Uh, so you can go ahead and head on over there, and that has uh, links to all of the shows. Uh, if you're looking for a particular show in a really quick way, so this is episode 16, uh, so you could just go to pub.brewery.fm slash brewery016. Uh, you know, uh, they're all published out that way. So like, if you were looking for the show notes from last week, that was episode 15, we could do pub.brewery.fm slash brewery015. Uh, hopefully we've made that easy for everybody to get it into. Uh, we're also out on Twitter. We are at Brewery FM. Uh, we have a Facebook page uh, where, again, we are Brewery FM. Uh, we like all sorts of feedback and uh, things like that there as well. Cool. Um, so I was listening to uh, the startup podcast uh, from Gimlet, or I guess that was the America's Podcast Company. Um, and they had mentioned something about how if folks uh, went and added comments or feedback to iTunes that it actually like makes it bubble up a little bit quicker. Um, you think that's Correct. true or not? Yes. Yeah. Uh, iTunes is kind of the uh, go-to place to make all those things happen. It is the uh, definitive podcast directory and, and everything else. So uh, it's definitely the place to head to and um, at least as far as like ratings and feedback, um, you know, folks can always email us at info at brewery.fm with individual suggestions, or maybe they want a particular show topic, things like that. Um, but just a star rating or feedback, uh, definitely iTunes is the best place to put that. Cool. Yeah. So, I mean, I would be curious to see if, uh, you know, that does change anything and who knows, maybe a month from now because, uh, Tim Farrow and a couple others, you know, John Backtool, uh, go in and add some comments and feedback. And all of a sudden we're showing up on Overcast FM's front page for technology podcast. That'd be cool. Um, if you do, if you are interested in doing that, um, if you send a screenshot that shows that you were actually entering in your feedback, uh, we will send you a ninja cat riding a unicorn breathing fire. Um, we just need a envelope address and we'll get that in the mail to you. Sweet. Uh, I'm all you, for you, US, product giveaways. Yeah. Yeah. U.S. only on that one, right? Uh, well, you know, I've got one, I was going to mail it to Jacksonville so that when you arrive back in the U.S., you will have something to put on your, uh, uh, your MacBook pro and or your passport. Ooh, new passport sticker. I like it. Yep. Yep. Welcome back to the U.S. Here's a sticker. Three cups of coffee in an hour and a half. Not a good mix. No, no, not at all. Um, but hey, this is what people tune in for. So let's uh, let's not do that down in November in uh, Orlando. What's that? Uh, drink lots of coffee and then go up on stage. Oh no, I'm going to do that. But I'll leave uh, you to talk. It'll be fine. I mean, if it's during the uh, if it's during that uh, that workshop on the first day, we should be okay. I think I can handle that one more or less on my own. I just need, uh, need some support on, you know, making things pop. Um, last year, I don't know if I told you about this, but, uh, got there, you know, Sunday afternoon, it was 
normal Orlando, nice and warm and muggy. Um, that night we did the, or I guess I did the uh, dinner walk around with some folks uh, and then went back to the hotel and was like, well, got to be up early tomorrow. Got a full day workshop I'm teaching. And so crashed into bed and, uh, well, crashed into bed after working on my Dursink box because for some reason Dursink wasn't kicking back up when I turned the VMs back on. So after I got Dursink working, you know, crashed into bed and, uh, when I woke up, walked over to the other Lowe's hotel and it was beautiful, like just picturesque. Um, come about noon, it was starting to get overcast, uh, come one o'clock, it's raining. And then, uh, one one of the guys is like, Hey, uh, we're under a tornado watch. I'm just like, well, that's good. I'm, I'm standing here in the very far end of the room next to the wall. And on the other side of this wall is just nothing. So great. Fantastic. Um, but, uh, yeah, that was, that was definitely exciting. That was the excitement for the session. Pretty much that. And when I forgot how to turn on, the directory synchronization component of Azure Active Directory, um, which, you know, basically was a five-minute coffee break when I was like, wait a sec, the link was just here yesterday. Where did they move it? Um, they moved your cheese. They did. They did, they did, they did. Uh, but anyway, you know, it's kind of one of those uh, fun moments of life where you're like, oh, where did it go? Crap. Um, yeah. But, uh, no, not too much other cool, fun stuff going on. I noticed, uh, started using pocket. I don't know why, uh, but there was a, uh, session last week, last weekend. I was walking the WNOD trail on Saturday. Might've been Sunday, Saturday morning. I think, yeah, I got a nice sunburn. That's what it was. Uh, and you know, I'm trudging along and I'm listening to one of these podcasts and they start talking about how Pedialyte, uh, is being marketed by some people as, you know, the great wonder drug for, uh, uh, hangovers. And I'm, I'm sitting there or I'm walking along just laughing. Um, and like many other companies, they're getting scrutinized because this is supposed to be something for children, uh, to keep their, you know, electrolytes up and whatnot when little kids get sick. Um, not something for parents to drink after they get hung over, which, you know, I guess is a thing. Um, so a lot of different organizations were kind of poking the folks that make Pedialyte to potentially like come out with an adult version, um, that doesn't share the name. <laughs> uh, so I, I found that to be uh, pretty humorous, just, uh, that they had no intent to change the name that they were going to press ahead using the name of Pedialyte, regardless if parents bought it. Um, which apparently is a third of their sales are for parents to use. Uh, I don't know even know how that happens because Pedialyte tastes like garbage. Uh, I don't remember it. Um, I, 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 I having little kids or um, you know recently my small people were smaller. Uh, yeah, you know you still do those kind of things. Uh, you know when they get the flu or whatever, and you need to rehydrate them. So. Uh, you know, maybe they tell you that it tastes disgusting. So you put a little bit of in a cup and you taste it yourself and Pedialyte's not good stuff. Uh, you know, j- just stick to uh, Gatorade. It has electrolytes or uh, uh, what was the stuff? Um, uh, was it Bronco water? No, 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 no. Uh, the stuff in Idiocracy. No clue. You don't know what I'm talking about? Nope. Uh, 
You've never seen Idiocracy? Uh-oh. You'll have to uh, you'll have to school me when you get back in June. Uh, you got to see Idiocracy. It's got uh, Luke Wilson, uh, Maya Rudolph, a uh, bunch of folks. Uh, what the hell is the name of that stuff? Blah, 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 blah. Hold on. Wikipedia, Rehabilitation, Frito, President... Rita, 500 years, so spells. One yeah, of this the, is fun, right? You mentioned Gatorade. Um, apparently, uh, Pedialyte has twice the sodium, five times as much potassium as the same size bottle of Gatorade with fewer than half the calories at 100 calories compared to 240 from a bottle of uh, Pedialyte. Calories are good for you. I, you know, I, I don't know. But, uh, yeah, the fact that... <laughs> A third of their stuff is going to parents. Just cracks me up. And they, because of this, uh, they actually came out with a new flavor. I think um, it's like a strawberry lemonade, <laughs> which I can only only figure probably tastes terrible as well. Um, but they, you know, a lot of parents groups are kind of frustrated with them um, for doing this. They posted on. I guess, yeah, on 6 May 2015 at 12.45, so a little bit afternoon, a uh, picture of two dudes with sombreros, a ukulele, and maracas just having a good old time. And it says, you know, hashtag day after Cinco, hashtag rehydrate um, from the Pedialyte Twitter account. <laughs> so they, they know parents are doing this, and they have no intention of stopping. Perfect. Uh, but you mentioned Idiocracy. I guess that's the 2006 movie with uh, Luke Wilson, Maya Rudolph, Dax Shepard, and a handful of others. That would be the one. Yeah. I, that, I, that was the Wikipedia article that I was reading to you. I, I can't believe you don't remember Electrolytes. you got to watch that movie. Uh, yeah. If I just play it here, can you hear my audio? Probably not. Darn. I, oh, it's Bronto. Bronto has Electrolytes. Yeah, you, you got to... Uh, hold on, I'm putting a link to this in the show notes because everybody should see this. Um, blah, 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 notes, notes, notes. Uh, general, what section does this go under? Apple? I'm, I'm going to put it under awesome. How's that? That works. There we go. Electrolytes. Yes. There she blows. Boom. Just like that. All done. So that will be the uh, the main thing that folks should really just go read and look at. They should skip the rest of everything in the show and just go watch that movie and get some Bronto. Yeah, yeah. Next week we can do movie review. Maybe. Uh, I was thinking next week uh, actually have beverages during the show and talk about, you know, their hoppy flavors and whatnot. <laughs>